Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. This is Concord Coalition Communications Director, Av Harris, filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we take a hard look at how climate change is impacting both our economy and our federal budget. The White House Office of Management and Budget in 2022 released its first annual estimate of the impact of climate change on the federal budget. It says taxpayer costs from the impact of climate change may already be as high as nearly $130 billion every year for things like responding to natural disasters such as hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and supercharged winter storms. But that's not all. The same estimate also predicts that climate change alone could lower our gross domestic product by up to 10% by the end of this century. This would result in revenue losses for the federal government of nearly $2 trillion every year. So, like it or not, climate change is a major economic and budgetary issue and something you can expect this program to focus on from time to time. So today, we hear excerpts from a recent panel discussion on this topic that the Concord Coalition put together in partnership with the League of Conservation Voters and the Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law in Concord. Our moderator for the event was award-winning New Hampshire journalist Laura Canoy. We have a fantastic panel of guests this morning. They are, starting um, on the end of the table, Brad Campbell, president of the Conservation Law Foundation, which uses the law, science, and markets to address New England's most urgent climate and environmental challenges. And Brad, really a treat. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Ann Kelly, Vice President of Government Relations at Ceres, where she heads up the Ceres Policy Network and leads a bench of more than 80 Fortune 500 companies that advocate for climate action. And Anne, it's been really nice to get to know you, and uh, thank you for being here as Thanks well. Thanks for having me. And also with us, Pat Parenteau, Emeritus Professor of Law and Senior Fellow for Climate Policy at the Vermont Law and Graduate School. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pat took us for a drive in his electric vehicle yesterday, so I'm sure he'll have some things to say about EVs. And Pat, it's been really a treat to get to know you too. Thank you for being here. Um, so all of you, let's look first at the big picture, and then we'll get into some of the specifics, which are also very interesting. And Brad, I'm going to start with you. How is climate change already costing our country? Well, it's already costing our country uh, enough uh, that it's a pocketbook issue for taxpayers, municipalities, uh, and the federal government. Uh, what we have in terms of climate impacts that are already here, extreme heat, extreme weather in the Northeast, a more than 70% increase in intense rains when you get more than an inch or two over a 24-hour period, uh, that's really overwhelming infrastructure. And so you have, uh, for example, you have towns, coastal towns, now very closely documenting the additional costs they're having to incur because of rising seas, more intense storms, uh, and uh, you have oh, uh, stormwater management 
infrastructure that's being overwhelmed. So you have here in New Hampshire, you have uh, municipalities that have struggled for years with the costs of uh, achieving the nitrogen reductions that have to occur in order to restore the health of Great Bay. Uh, that problem is being amplified uh, by those more intense rains that are carrying more uh, nutrients and other pollution into our waters. Uh, those waters are warmer and so uh, the impact of those nutrients is amplified because it, it's a perfect petri dish for uh, algae blooms uh, that is generated by those nutrients and you know and obviously uh, the impacts of that in turn on uh, all of the economic activity that surrounds uh, a great natural treasure like Great Bay is affected as well. So uh, we're really seeing municipalities struggling, states the same in terms of the costs of response and helping municipalities prepare for more extreme weather. Uh, we're going to see and are starting to see from extreme heat uh, more health-related illness, uh, particularly in seat, uh, areas that have heat islands, uh, you know, where the where the impact of extreme heat is intensified. Places like Manchester that have very limited tree cover, even though they're northern, uh, uh, they're still uh, very subject to those those impacts. Uh, and so it's a it's an it's 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 a problem that's here, just like the extreme weather is here. Uh, it's going to be increasingly a burden for taxpayers, uh, and it's. It's one of the reasons why it's so appropriate that the Concord Coalition uh, is elevating that this issue here. Uh, it's kind of the what I think of as the budget hawks of advocacy. Um, you know, this is an important issue. Uh, it extends not just to those local and state impacts, but it, when you get to the federal budget, uh, and you've probably read lots of screaming headlines about the uh, the national debt lately. You've got costs of disaster response costs uh, and the implicit subsidies of federal flood insurance that's actually encouraging development in the wrong places so even as we should be retreating from the most places most exposed to uh, extreme weather we're actually subsidizing development in those places uh, and at the federal level uh, and certainly pertinent to uh, Concord Coalition's work uh, most disaster response is treated as an emergency appropriation so a one-time A one-time deal, but no scrutiny of whether right. we should have an offset, or what the budget right. impact is, whether we should raise taxes. And so it's, if, you're, if you're a budget hawk, you really should be a climate hawk. Right. Well, and that's a big comprehensive list. Um, disaster insurance, impacts on natural amenities, um, recovery from storms, public health. Anything else, Pat, that you would add to that list in terms of the financial costs and the budgetary costs that we're seeing? The impact on natural systems should be recognized. The Gulf of Maine, for example, is the uh, body of water that's warming faster than any other body of water on Earth. Think about that for a minute. And the consequence of that is, you know, there's this big controversy between the lobster fishermen in, in Massachusetts and Maine particularly and the right whale which is the most critically endangered whale species on earth only about three or hundred of them left um, and, and what I was telling the lobstermen recently though they didn't want to hear this is is that's not your biggest problem the biggest problem is that the lobsters are going north and entire ecosystems are shifting to the north so the lobster fishery has already left most of the Atlantic coast uh, and the, the one that's still in the Gulf of Maine is leaving as well. So it's going to Canada right now. The, uh, the, the entire ecosystem of, of the Atlantic Ocean 
and oceans around the world in response to warming and acidification is completely changing the marine ecosystem. That's happening now. And, and very, very tiny amounts of increase in carbonic acid in the oceans causes massive impacts on the base of the food chain. It attacks, get this, shell-forming organisms. Hmm, what might those be, right? So you're talking about, in, in our context, billions of dollars. In the global context, hundreds of billions of dollars, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, some of the things that, that Brad is talking about are right here and now in our face, but other things that are happening are not that far away. So that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask Anne. And as I said earlier, Anne works with private sector um, entities on this. So what is the private sector, Anne, seeing right now in terms of these costs of climate change? How is it affecting them? Yeah, thank you, Laura. And if you, you've just heard what Pat and Brad said, all of these things are going to affect private companies. And, and I like to say that we work with um, forward-thinking uh, companies and investors, and I'm happy to be scrutinized about the actual role of the private sector when it comes to environmental law and climate regulation. Let's be candid about that historically. But of course, any company that's trying to make things is going to be affected by extreme weather events, by business disruption, by threats to supply chain, whether it's cocoa, cotton, coffee, you know, any number of agricultural commodities. Um, supply chains are going to be affected. Some communities in supply chains are going to be affected. In various parts of the world where you're making products, if there are extreme weather events, if whole communities are being wiped out, that's going to affect your costs. It's going to affect your planning. And that's one of the reasons why so many companies have started to, over the last several years, set net zero targets, purchase enormous amounts of renewable energy, and really start to take this seriously because they felt it. I'll admit, it takes something like Hurricane Sandy in 2012 was a big deal. And companies like L'Oreal had facilities in Puerto Rico that were just shut down. Their whole facility became a community center for people to do laundry and to get water. So the level of disruption is profound for many of them, and they're seeing it and they're paying for it. Now you could say, well, wait, do, does the private sector really pay? Don't we have a tendency to kind of privatize gain and socialize loss? Yes, we do. And that is, do we end up paying for much of this? Yes. We do. And my office has done reports on just how much the public pays when we have major weather disasters and how often the private sector is able to, um, let's say, share the burden of the law. So I just want to be candid about that. At the same time, uh, I, I am here to tell you there's some really good news about the way in which the private sector has started to step up because they're as worried as we sure. are. Sure. Can you untangle that for us a little bit, Anne? How, um, when the private sector is affected, they manage to let us share those costs thank you very much <laughs> yeah well that goes a lot to just the way in which uh, federal tax dollars like you know go into disaster relief like FEMA or flood control or you know it's pretty easy to sh to share those kinds of costs I'm happy to share the report we did on Hurricane Sandy it was just really striking that most of the damage ends up being put on the shoulders of public entities and so the risk there and some corporate leaders I've talked to have said you know our company uh, in our particular sector we're not too worried we're gonna go to the high ground so this has been a myth that somehow you can go to the high ground and you can pass the costs off on others and that's certainly a myth now I can tell you I haven't heard that lately I used to hear that five ten years ago I would say now um, nearly every industry we talk to is deeply concerned oh that's interesting and Pat we talked about this on the phone is it possible to put a dollar figure 
on these costs. You know, Brad mentioned the public costs. You mentioned the costs to um, those who get make their living from the ocean. Anne mentioned all the costs from the companies that she's working with. Can anybody really put a dollar figure on all of this? Sure. Securities and Exchange Commission said in 2022, extreme weather events cost $165 billion. The United States leads the world in billion dollar disasters every year. And Brad made the point about extreme weather events. What the science is telling us, and you hear this all, all the time, you can't connect any single event to climate. Every single extreme event, heat, drought, fire, flood, storm, disease, ozone, every single extreme event that we're experiencing connected to weather, right, has a human fingerprint. So it is, it's the wrong question to say, is an individual event, these $165 billion in damages event, caused by climate change? That figure wouldn't be that high without climate change. That's the point. It accelerates it. It's weather on steroids. That's the concept that you've got to get uh, understand if you're looking at that. If you want to look globally, and if you want to look longer term, McKinsey and company has done the math, and their figure is, I just looked it up, 275 trillion, with a T, by 2050. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, that's 7.5% of global GDP. That's if we don't do what the climate scientists are telling us we should have done, should have started 40 years ago. So amid these big, big numbers. So big numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So big numbers. Um, who is paying, Anne alluded to this, Brad, but who is paying those costs? And is it sometimes those who are least able to pay those costs? Well, if you look at the impacts that Pat described, it's really the communities that have historically been overburdened by pollution that are also the most exposed to climate risk. They're hit first and worst by climate, just as they've been hit first and worst by pollution. Uh, and that's reflected across uh, communities. And uh, you know, it is really a, a uh, looming uh, crisis uh, of its own in terms of where those impacts are occurring, urban heat island effect mostly occurring in poor communities, communities of color. Uh, and that's before you get to uh, the really catastrophic types of events that uh, are facing communities, the types of communities that tend to surround large industrial facilities. So we're now in litigation against ExxonMobil, Conservation Law Foundations in litigation against ExxonMobil, against Shell. Uh, because even though those companies have known about climate change for decades, their own scientists doing very good science, they've didn't, done nothing to prepare their facilities for extreme weather. Uh, with those extreme uh, rain events, more pollution is flowing into rivers, including you know, toxic carcinogens. Uh, and of course, huge public investments in cleaning, cleaning up places like Boston Harbor, uh, uh, Narragansett Bay in Providence, uh, could be wiped out at a stroke of a storm uh, in a single uh, in a single event, uh, and you know there was a town uh, in, in after hurricane during Hurricane Katrina, one type facility, one of the low lying, uh, big oil terminal, very co very climate vulnerable. One terminal ha uh, was inundated, the tanks collapsed. Uh, the adjoining town, predominantly poor of color. Uh, had to be bought out, every resident, 
at a cost of half a billion dollars. Uh, that's one facility, and we've got uh, many of them across the New England coast and they're surrounded by the most vulnerable communities. Well, and I want to let our audience know that as we talk about the costs of climate change, we are also going to talk about the economic opportunities of climate change. So um, don't get too down, because we, we will get there. <laughs> we haven't <laughs> we'll hit the there. bottom yet. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in a few minutes, we'll start taking questions from our audience. So again, you got a card, so please write something very neatly so that I can read it. And uh, when I start calling for questions, just hold that card up over, over your shoulder. Well, it's interesting, Brad, that you said CLF is in litigation against ExxonMobil for these costs. And um, to you, Anne, and also Pat, um, Anne, you first, please. What legal avenues are there for people who are harmed by um, by climate change to get some kind of restitution? Yeah, well, I want to pick up on the, the larger theme Brad raised is just that the this is a profound injustice, right? So obviously we know this. There's both the macro and the micro level. The people who are suffering around the world are those who did the least amount to cause climate change, and they're suffering first and worst. So we can't really let that sink in. So that's true with places like Africa. We have, a, if you look at the per capita emissions of the average Nigerian, say, it's about equivalent to the average U.S. refrigerator. So the average per capita emissions for the U.S. is here, and it goes down if you go to Sweden, France, China. On Capitol Hill, we're always hearing, well, why don't the Chinese do something about climate change? Why should we do it? Well, their emissions went up making our stuff, just to remember. We offshored all of our manufacturing. Emissions went up in other places. So again, per capita emissions, there's no question, the U.S. has been the biggest offender, for sure, in terms of locking greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. And our, our emissions are only down slightly because we've offshored. And then on a micro level, as Brad indicated, of course, communities of color have been profoundly uh, affected. We've seen environmental disasters, climate change disasters, and so it's really important to remember that. And the final data point on that just came out this past year, which we kind of always knew, but now there's real data that who's causing climate change? Well, it's the upper crust, right? It's the upper five. Wealth. Well, it's the wealthiest yeah. people who have homes with, you said fingerprint, but homes with big footprints, flying cars, all the things we know. So it's really important to let that settle in when we think about solutions. Um, and your question was, what legal avenues <laughs> right. do people yeah. have? No, and I think that's really important. You know, the average Nigerian emits the same amount of climate, uh, same amount of emissions as my refrigerator. Um, so that's that's profound yeah. to think about where is this really coming from. But yeah, I mean, are there legal yeah, avenues for people yeah, affected by this? There are legal avenues. Uh, and what we're beginning to see uh, really across the country is uh, particularly municipalities, but also states uh, are suing the, the big oil companies saying you've known about this for decades. Uh, you deceived the, you spent hundreds, you sent billions of dollars deceiving the public about the links between uh, greenhouse gas emissions, your products, and climate change. Uh, you should be paying our costs of response. So, every, you know, uh, um, Boulder, Colorado, uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, uh, and, you know, multiple cities and towns in California. And I think you're going to begin to see, because there are so many uh, climate vulnerable cities and towns in New England, you're going to be going to begin to see those lawsuits here, too. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Av Harris, filling in for Bob Bixby. We'll have more from our panel discussion on the economic and federal budget impact of climate change after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Av Harris, filling in for Bob Bixby. 
We're listening to excerpts from a panel discussion held recently at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law on the economic and budgetary impacts of climate change. Our moderator was journalist Laura Canoy, who was talking to Vermont Law School professor Pat Parento about lawsuits filed against the fossil fuel industry seeking to recoup the costs of pollution. They are staying alive, and that's everything. So They're not being dismissed. They're not being dismissed. They're being right. sent to state courts. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court has a case pending right now, a petition, I should say, uh, that's very important to keep an eye on uh, out of two of the cases that, that Brad mentioned uh, uh, from um, um, the city of Baltimore case and the city of the county of Boulder case and a case in California. Um, and the reason I, I raise this is because we can't ignore the, um, the fact that we don't have a Supreme Court who's necessarily inclined environmentally and not even necessarily inclined to understand the science of the cases that come before them. So there's a real concern not that there isn't solid legal history and grounds for communities to seek compensation for the damage that the companies have caused by their deceit, and not only their deceit, but their active and effective campaign to prevent any meaningful legislation at not only the federal level, but also at many state levels, right? So the Waxman-Markey bill, which was the one chance we had to establish a national cap-and-trade program that would have made a really meaningful difference, went down to defeat as a result of the coalition that Exxon and others put together to put the misinformation out, to put the pressure on Congress not to enact this kind of legislation. So the point is, there is a solid legal basis for these claims. It's polluter pays, folks. It's Kosian economics. It's when you are causing damage from your product and not disclosing the dangers of that product, you pay for that. That's the free market way of dealing with these issues. So these cases are four square within the concept of conservative, market-oriented, classical economics. And yet, the courts will be the final arbiters of whether or not those claims are allowed to get to a jury. Stay tuned. The city of Honolulu case is actually the case that's in the front of the line. That state court judge has denied a motion to dismiss the case, has ordered discovery in the case. That's the thing the oil companies are terrified about. So, so Pat, what I want to ask you, and others please weigh in, is um, given what you said about these cases, but given what you said about the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court right now, do they have a prayer? They have a prayer. We always have a prayer. You know, you have to show up, make the argument, they get to decide. That's what I tell my students. You get to argue, they get to decide. But you don't get to say, oh, they're not going to agree with me, so I quit. Mm. Okay? So you just make your case. You've got the facts, you've got the law, you've got the history. I want to highlight one thing. The Waxman-Markey bill did go down in 2010, okay? I do want to keep hope alive, and so I have to put on my aviator glasses. Why is that? Okay, because the Inflation Reduction Act (laughs) was the most important climate bill to pass in 2022. Excellent. And when it passed, Barack Obama tweeted to Joe Biden, this is a BFD. So you'll see in the corner, (laughs) BFD. And the White House gave out these glasses on September when we celebrated the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a very big effing deal, I'm just saying. Um, We almost lost it. Everything Pat said is exactly right, okay? It is really hard to get laws through. But this one got through. 
And it got through because of a lot of activism and a tremendous amount of work, a lot of pressure on a, on a certain senator, I won't mention names, but Joe Manchin, for example, uh, <laughs> a lot of pressure on do you want to go down as a disaster or do you want to be a hero? And he had to really face that choice. So to their credit, folks got in a room, we got that thing through, the largest ever investment in climate ever, $370 billion, and it's completely conservative market based. It is not command and control. I love command and control. I love the Clean Air Act. This is, this is free flow of capital. This is investing in the clean energy economy, the way we invested in railroads, the way we invested in highways. And we can get it done, but we got to win that win, and that's going to be a, a job in and of itself. But I did want to keep hope alive uh, by noting that. The litigation question, I'll let Brad, Brad does litigation. Litigation has been profoundly important in building our environmental law infrastructure. I guess I think what you're getting at, my concern right now with litigation is just one of timing, because we don't have any time to fix climate change. We needed to do it 20 years ago. So I'll let Brad speak about the power of litigation Oh, that's a really good moment. point. Litigation, as everybody here knows, does take time. Go ahead, Brad, and then uh, we're gonna go to the audience, so get your questions ready. Uh, quickly, in terms of those cases Pat referred to, uh, they're in state courts. And so even the conservatives will be in a tough position because just as they've, uh, they're in, they, they've had the most hostility to environmental protection, uh, they've also been big boosters of states' rights. And so just as in the Dobbs abortion case, uh, you know, the, it's a test of whether they're true to their so-called federal principles and will let state law address those damages cases. Um, Secondly, you know, Pat's absolutely right on discovery. Uh, you know, we're in discovery with ExxonMobil and Shell right now, and they are fighting tooth and nail. It is something they're terrified of. And for that reason, among others, uh, when there have been proposals for a carbon tax in Congress, what was the one ask of the oil industry? They wanted to be protected from lawsuits yeah. about climate. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. That's something they very much fear. The risk of these cases themselves that Brad is describing is causing a change in the way that lawyers are advising corporate clients on material risk to their asset base, the way bankers and brokers and, in, and institutional investors are looking at all those questions. The financial risk of climate, we talk a lot about other risks, but the real serious financial risks of not dealing with climate. We have some fantastic questions from our audience here at the Rudman Center at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law and we'll start collecting questions from our Zoom audience as well. Wow, this is really great. Uh, Michael is here from Hollis and he says, please address changes in water supply due to climate change. Is there a solution? This is a great question because as water becomes more scarce, it'll become more expensive. Anybody want to deal with that? Uh, yeah, what we're seeing right now uh, in, in the West with Lake Powell drying up uh, and uh, you know, all of the southwestern states essentially squabbling over who's going to take the draconian cuts in their water supply uh, that are going to be needed uh, because of that drought. Uh, and uh, it's, talk about economic impacts. Uh, the agricultural economy, uh, the, the incredible growth that the southwest has seen, all of that is put at risk uh, by the extreme drought that they're suffering there. Uh, and so, you know, we have had unusual droughts here as well, and water supply is going to be a continuing problem, both because water is going to be scarcer and because the water quality 
uh, is threatened by yeah. uh, climate take change more as well. Yeah, money to clean it up. Did and, you want to jump in there, Ann? Oh, go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I don't think that the massive snowstorms that you're seeing out in the West in California are going to fix the drought problem. It's a water debt problem. Okay, it's exceeding the carrying capacity of the natural systems of that landscape to support the kind of population in cities and demands for squirting lawns and squirting fountains and all the rest of that. Right. So the real problem that the areas of the country that are constrained by water supply is that there's just no way that they can capture the amount of moisture that comes through the system periodically, chaotically, unpredictably. There's no structure in place to do that. So the West faces an enormous problem of overbuilt system that can't be sustained, mm. not sustainable. And yet there's tremendous growth in places like still Phoenix. Growing. Yeah. Still yeah. growing. Which is interesting that it's still growing yeah. because people have been talking about this for a long, a long time. Um, here's one I want to address to you, Anne, please. Will you address the current attacks by states on ESG no. investing? Why does this matter? And just in case nobody in the audience, most people know what that is, but just explain ESG investing and uh, yeah. address that. Thank sure, you. and I'm glad if we could just add an extra hour to today, we'll be all right. set. Yes, that would be great. So ESG stands for uh, Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it has, has emerged as a really important era, a set of factors to consider when investors invest. It turns out all three of those are important. Environment, obviously, around climate. S, having to do with social and labor issues, human rights. And governance, obviously, how things are governed. But the big one that's gotten attention is E. Why? Because it's working. Because people like BlackRock have said in no uncertain terms just this past November, it turns out the company who better prepare themselves for the risks of climate change are going to be a better investment. Now, this is not LCV saying this. I love LCV, okay, but this is BlackRock. So conservative, thoughtful asset managers for the last 10 years have said, you know, climate risk is real. Climate risk is financial risk, and so we're going to put our money, and pension funds have done the same, we're going to put it in places where people are going for the long term. They're not shorting the earth. They're not discounting the future. They're actually investing in resiliency. That makes sense. So what happened with that movement? It won. It won. And what happens when you win? The losers get upset. So again, not to mention names, but the oil and gas sector said, well, ESG <laughs> is basically another word for divestment. Now, it wasn't per se, but what there was is really skillful asset managers investing in the longer term. And again, for pension funds, they have to think about the long-term retirement funds for teachers and firemen and nurses. And so that's the way they invested. So seeing that shift of capital, and something else happened. Joe Biden was elected, and that meant that the Securities and Exchange Commission was going to finally invest in something Ceres asked them to do 10 years ago, which is to require robust climate risk disclosure on the part of private entities so that every company, including oil and gas companies, would have to t put, make public what is your climate risk, what are the implications of your business, and what's your long-term plan. Well, once the possibility of that came out, oil and gas companies emerged and said, no, 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 this is socialism, can't do, can't have, woke. and they're calling it woke. Woke yep. capitalism. Yes, capitalism. I was happy to hear on CNN this morning that most Americans think woke is a good thing. We call it awake capitalism, actually. Um, or just capitalism. Or just capitalism. Yeah. The free flow capital. So it's extremely non-conservative to have the government reach over and see where you can and cannot invest, but that's yeah. what the backlash to ESG is doing. And just, ahead, a quick, yeah. just a quick example. State of Texas went to Vanguard and said, yeah. drop your net zero policy uh, or you, we won't do business with you. It took all about 10 minutes for Vanguard to say, okay, we'll drop it. 
So it's a really important example mm -hmm. because we've, we've established private entities, investors and companies to make net zero targets, to look at their portfolios, to really be able to reach net zero, to meet the Paris climate goals. And Vanguard gets scared of the politics and then they drop. Wow. This, is a, this is really unfortunate. And so we need a tremendous, the good news, I had to get to the good news, um, we've been able to kill some of these bills in various states. Um, there will be such a bill in New Hampshire. I'm sure that's being talked about. Uh, it needs to not go forward. We need to support the freedom to invest and, and free flow of capital. And billions are going into sustainable development globally. So despite these yeah. efforts, these, these last ditch, last ditch, dead ender efforts to stop what the market wants to see happen, it's happening. Yes. It's not happening at the scale and the speed that we need to meet the science, but it's happening. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Av Harris, filling in for Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from a recent panel discussion on the economic and budgetary impact of climate change after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Av Harris, filling in for Bob Bixby. More now from our recent panel discussion on the economic and budgetary impact of climate change at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Our panelists for the event were Vermont Law School professor Pat Parento, who heads the Environmental Law Center at the Vermont Law School, Ann Kelly, Vice President of Government Relations for the Climate Investor Group Series, and Brad Campbell, Executive Director of the Conservation Law Foundation. Our moderator was longtime New Hampshire journalist Laura Canoy. Here's one from Joan in Amherst who says many climate activists promote carbon pricing and dividends to encourage greenhouse gas emission reduction. What are the panelists' thoughts on this? Who, who would like to address that? Um. Um, I'll, t I'll start. <laughs> uh, the uh, you know it is uh, it can be an effective tool, uh, but it has also uh, not. And I'll give you an example. There's a regional agreement that CLF uh, was very engaged in to cap. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, sort of a cap and trade uh, system like the one that the Markey bill that uh, Pat referred to tried to impose nationally. You know, that has effectively cut uh, power plant emissions by about a third, uh, but that's not enough. Uh, and the question is always whether the price of will be set high enough uh, and, uh, and how quickly those emissions can take place. And finally, where those, where those costs will be passed. Uh, so right, you see this exact, you, know, right. you know, essentially a gas tax is a um, right. is is a form of can be a form of carbon price, but, but the equities the equities right. of it. I mean, it's also a re uh, regressive tax, and that's the kind of balance we have to focus right. on. Right, and given what we talked about earlier concerning who pays these costs and equity, so is that given concerns about the effects of climate change already hitting those most vulnerable? What do you think, Anne? Is this a good strategy or should we find another way? We gotta keep talking about different models, for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, there's gotta be a way to do it. There have been some provisions that have tried to exempt uh, uh, low-income individuals, and there's, I've seen some that exempt your price at the tank and they tax wholesalers. But one first step to carbon pricing might be a CBAM, which is a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And that would be a tax on imports coming into the U.S. If the place they're coming from hasn't 
actually implemented a carbon, carbon plan and have carbon, carbon goals, in, climate goals in place. And that might be um, that might be a way to start the process. There's a Senator White House has a CBAM proposal. Obviously, there's one in the EU. The risk there is that you end up with a domestic tariff, and that can be controversial. Mm -hmm. But the whole notion that you want to price the thing you don't like still deserves some some real serious consideration. And we also have to look carefully, as Brett indicated, at what are the other models and where has it worked. And he's absolutely right that the price has to be high enough. Mm -hmm. um, politically, it's been difficult. Certainly, we tried uh, with the Inflation Protection Act to get it there. Uh, that was not successful. But I think that you know we still need to continue to try. We did get a little crack in the door with the Inflation Reduction Act with a, with a fee on methane. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's three ways to price carbon. One is regulations. We've been doing that forever, okay? Regulations that internalize the external costs, the environmental costs, the air quality, water quality, climate impacts of fossil fuel combustion and combustion generally, right? So that's one way to do it. So strengthening our regulations under existing laws, because we're not going to be seeing a lot of new environmental laws for a while, right? But there is still a lot of authority, notwithstanding the Supreme Court's terrible decision in West Virginia versus EPA, which took away a lot of EPA's power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, but EPA has a lot more tools in the chest than that. They have a, a whole array of regulatory tools under the Clean Water Act. I could go through the alphabet, I won't, with you. And so all of those things are driving fossil fuels out of the market because they're not reflecting the true cost of those, gener those services and goods generated by fossil fuels. So that's one. Carbon tax, yes. Carbon. There's successful examples of that everywhere. Europe loves, uh, you know, environmental taxation. Sweden has a massive uh, carbon tax program. British Columbia has a very successful carbon tax program. So they're out there, and they don't just throttle the economy at all. In fact, the BC uh, tax was put to a referendum, and people voted to increase it. Okay. So and BC's economic output is outperforming the rest of Canada. So there are ways of continuing to argue for that kind of an approach or a cap-and-trade approach like Reggie, like California, etc. There's lots of different ways to get at this. So many good questions. Here's one from our Zoom audience. We do have a lot of people both here at the Rudman Center and on Zoom this morning, so thank you for that. Um, this person says, the panel has spoken about the cost and federal support to rebuild, clean up, etc. Is there work at the federal level to flip the dollars from disaster impact to prevention? Whether technology, building codes, land use planning. This is a great question and mm -hmm. an area that I'd like us to go into anyway about um, climate opportunity and, and prevention. So, um, Anne, do you want to grab that or, or Brad? We've never had an administration that has been more committed to climate action than this one, that has better understood resilience, um, that has really attempted to shift to do the kind of flip that we're talking about here. No, no question about it. That every agency has had to come up with a plan, that there's massive um, there's a huge buy-clean effort around making sure we're spending federal dollars in a way that is in, uh, investing in resilience and buying materials that have less embedded carbon in them. So there's lots of programs to do this in a really thoughtful way. I mean, they have two years, so these are things that take time, and they had to reverse a lot of things, so they had some disadvantages going in. 150. 
yeah, exactly. 150 rules and policies from the Trump administration. Yeah, so I just like to allow for that because this this was not an easy this was not an easy on ramp. But um, there's there's definitely efforts along these lines. I mean, there's a, and there's a few examples. I mean, it's great that the U.S. Postal Service is now deeply invested in EV trucks. You have to look at those examples. Uh, there's no question that the folks I talked with the Biden administration are fluent in understanding what buy clean can really mean. They're fluent in understanding resilience and prevention and bringing down greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, I'd like to say they're doing everything they can. I mean, they obviously need to be pushed. They're still, some of the agencies are still staffing up. Some of the heads of agencies haven't been confirmed yet, so they've got barriers in front of them. But I think people can have confidence that it's moving in the right direction. If you want to read a really positive account of what can be, read Mark Jacobson's No Miracles Required. Okay, he's a Stanford engineer, brilliant. And he lays it out in exquisite, only as an engineer could, quantitative detail, just exactly how do we get to carbon zero and do it fast, much faster. And if you want another one, The Big Fix by Hal Harvey. These, these are the books that are laying it out in black and white right in front of us. You know, we are confronted with insurmountable opportunities right now in terms of the technologies that we have. We are going to need more technologies. We're going to have to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Get used to it, ladies and gentlemen. We're not going to be able to get to where we need to get to just by reducing emissions. We're going to have to take the carbon that we put in the atmosphere out. And that technology is going to be scary. And it's going to take time. And we're going to need it. But in the meantime, for the next 20, 30 years, we got all the work we could possibly handle. And the lawyers in the room and the would-be lawyers in the room, this is all the good news you could possibly hope to hear because the jobs and the opportunities yeah. for you to be the greatest generation of this century are right in front of you. Well, and yeah, Brad, and to pick up on what Pat says, so we have all the tools we need for the next 20 years anyway. What are some of those tools as you see it? Well, a lot of the issues that, that you mentioned or the questioner mentioned are really issues that are decided at the state and regional and local level, ultimately, especially land use. Uh, and so the way that the, the uh, Biden climate spending will be most effective is if it's amplified by complementary regulations at the state and local level. Uh, that's where we need to see leadership now, because as Pat pointed out, the Supreme Court's going to be wrapped around the, and EPA is going to be wrapped around the Supreme Court ankle, a axle for a while uh, because of the West Virginia decision. Uh, the best way we can use that money is to complement it with state policies. Uh, and you know, most decisions about energy use, for example, are made at the state and regional level. Uh, New Hampshire's an outlier right now. We have five out of six New England states that have strong climate mandates in place, uh, enforceable ones, but New Hampshire needs to act too. Uh, and uh, as tough as the politics are, uh, you know, I think all these issues we're talking about, the pocketbook po politics are very resonant in New Hampshire, uh, and that has to be part of the conversation. Uh, and so, you know, really we need to look not just to the federal government, yeah. but to what we can do uh, to really take advantage of the Biden spending, because things that wouldn't be possible to do at the state and regional level by regulation are now possible because there's this funding in place that eases the, the economic pain of taking real climate action. What about at the individual level, Brad? What responsibility or um, does each individual have for addressing this? Well, we all have a responsibility, uh, and but I, I also think there's a, 
Uh, and I, I, I think everyone needs to change their lifestyle as much as they can and, and be a first adopter of cleaner technologies. Uh, but I also think it's a little bit of the fossil fuel industry's game to, to lay it all on you. Oh, you're the ones that are the cause of the problem. Uh, when there's really, we need systemic change. Uh, whether it's in the waste system, uh, where we're now, uh, other New England states are trying to dump all their waste uh, in New Hampshire, which is both, both a pollution problem and a climate problem, uh, whether it's in terms of the energy systems, uh, you know, we're not able through our individual actions, we can buy solar, but you know, to really have impact, we also need to be active uh, and calling our legislatures and pushing uh, the kind of systemic change we need. We absolutely do, yeah. but individual action. First off, you can run for office here in New Hampshire. And let's shift the age. I'm told that the New Hampshire legislature, that the average age is over 65. So for the young person who asked that question, run for office, you collect your $100 a year, big bucks. Um, but there's a nuance to what Brad said about him. He's absolutely right, that the fossil fuel sector would love to think that it's all on you. It's all on people and those consumers who consume so much. And that's, and, and so we need them to change in the systemic change. But there's also things that consumers can do to send important demand signals. So when you buy EVs, the more EVs we sell, the price is going to come down, the demand's going to go up. The industry's going to shift. It's just going to happen. The more induction stoves we buy, the price is going to come down, and there's a tax benefit now for that, too. And, and it's going to shift. The more you're conscious of not using um, single-use plastics, not to point anything out in particular, <laughs> but the demand curve is going to shift. So the, the beverage companies need to hear that we're not happy about the single-use plastics in the ocean. So, so let's, not, let's remember that at your cocktail parties with friends and neighbors, you can talk about your EV, you can talk about getting rid of the lawn and all the things that you can really do as an individual without letting the fossil fuel sector off the hook. Let yeah, me add ahead, one other point. You have to have skin in the game to have credibility, okay? So if, if you really are not maximizing your potential to lower your carbon footprint across all the, the, the you know, behaviors that, that we engage in, heat pumps, induction stoves, EVs, insulation, solar panels, community solar projects, the list goes on and on. VMTs, vehicle miles traveled, air travel. There's all kinds of ways in which you can not only make a difference, I don't care how small it is, every ton matters, okay? So you know everything you do does matter, but more, than, more importantly, it gives you credibility. You're listening to Facing the Future. My name is Av Harris, and I've been filling in for Bob Bixby as your host for today's program. That's all the time we have for this week. To see video of the entire panel discussion on the economic and budgetary impact of climate change, visit our website, conqueredcoalition.org. And tune in next week for another edition of Facing the Future. 